0: Will you please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, Matthew chapter 7, and we've got some Bibles for those who need them. These uh, brothers have some, they're going to make their way to the back. If you need a Bible, just get their attention, and they'll get one of those to you that's already marked at Matthew 7 so you can follow along as we look at the third and final chapter of the famous Sermon on the Mount that Jesus preached nearly 2,000 years ago. So in the next couple of months, we will close in on the end of our series called Transformed Lives in the Sermon on the Mount. During the 1996 Summer Olympics in Atlanta, a bomb detonated in a park that was filled with people. One person died and 111 were injured. There would have been many more casualties but for the excellent work of a security guard who was on the scene, a man named Richard Jewell. And Jewell had spotted a suspicious bag near a concert stage in the park. He had called the police and he began moving people away from the area. But the bomb detonated before it could be retrieved. Still, Richard Jewell was a hero for his fast action, credited with saving perhaps hundreds of lives. But within days the hero became a suspect. The FBI had begun investigating him. Skeptical of his claim that he had just seen the bag and thought it strange and so reported it, they called his former employer and someone there told them words to the effect, you know, he always wants to be the hero. As they pieced together his profile further, they determined that he was what law enforcement uh, refers to as a wannabe a guy who wants to be a cop but hadn't quite made it. Without much more than that to go on, they conducted a search of his home. I can still recall the news reports saying that the FBI had found, quote, bomb-making material, focusing specifically and ominously on the discovery of duct tape in his house. With his name and face all over the 24-7 coverage of the cable stations, especially CNN, which is headquartered in Atlanta, and so-called experts who were saying on television that he fits the classic profile, Richard Jewell was convicted by many of us in the court of public opinion. For the next 88 days that followed, he was harassed mercilessly. But after all the bluster and breaking news and expert profiles, Richard Jewell was finally exonerated. The real bomber was not identified until a year later and not caught until six years after that. And so a man who performed a truly heroic deed had his life turned upside down, and he died just ten years later at the age of 44. He was falsely accused based upon the flimsiest of so-called evidence. Yet many of us lapped up each report and drew our own conclusions about his guilt. After all, we're accustomed to thinking, where there's smoke, what? And there is just too much pointing to this guy, many of us thought to ourselves, with all of those reports coming at us. But The truth is, Richard Jewell was falsely judged based upon insufficient evidence. And he was judged by people who had no business being in the judging business. People in living rooms all across America who had no access to real information about this man and what he may or may not have done. Now what happened to Richard Jewell is, to put it mildly, unusual in the magnitude of the accusation and in the attention that it garnered. But the truth is the same two factors at play in 1996 are at play regularly in the web of human relationships every day. People are evaluated, and conclusions are drawn about them and about their actions based on insufficient evidence by people who have no business acting as judges. I'm not just talking about in law enforcement. I'm talking about in our relationships every day, at home, at work, and in the church. The way we make judgments about others is of great interest to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he spoke of it in the passage we're going to consider today in Matthew chapter 7. And friends, as people who are committed to truth, we want to ensure that our evaluations of others are based upon accurate information and that our conclusions about them show them the love and mercy that God has shown to us. And all too often, that's not the case, and that's why Jesus spoke these words as part of this famous sermon. Now, let's bow together and ask the Lord to help us, and then we will look together. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to be here in this sacred moment, to open your word and to have our hearts changed thereby. But they will only be changed if we are attentive, they will only be changed if we accurately apply what... The Lord Jesus has said, and so Lord, we ask your aid to do that very thing, so that in our relationships, relationships that you have sovereignly placed into our lives, for us to cultivate Christ likeness both in ourselves and in others, Lord, we ask to be changed so that in those relationships, we will evaluate one another accurately according to your word, and toward the end of your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Verse 1 of Matthew 7. Jesus says, do not judge. Now, I'm convinced, I don't have any polling on this, but I'm convinced that Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1 has probably overtaken John three sixteen as the most well-known verse by contemporary Americans. And the reason is because our culture is one that does not believe in anything remotely close to absolute truth. And therefore, the idea that anyone would have the audacity to make a judgment about anyone or anything is absurd to us in our day. And so we commonly then hear people saying, don't judge, don't judge me, don't preach. How often do you hear that? And many of the people who are saying that don't recognize that they are quoting, albeit inaccurately, Matthew chapter 7. What's worse, though, is when Christians or those who do know the verse directly quote the verse and, in fact, are misapplying it, as we will see. Do not judge, indeed, Jesus said, but we need to see the context in which he said it. That we live in a culture that believes there is no such thing as right and wrong is seen in a number of ways. I remember when I was in college, Ronald Reagan was president, and he had the audacity to refer to the Soviet Union at the height of the Cold War as, quote, an evil empire. Some of you may remember that. He referred to the Soviet Union as an evil empire. He was correct about that. They were an evil empire. But I remember in college, folks were absolutely amazed that anyone would have the audacity to refer to evil or good and certainly to refer to another country as evil. But it's another indication that we live in a culture that does not believe in anything approaching absolute right and wrong. So what does Jesus mean when he says in Matthew 7 do not judge? Well, it is not prohibiting judgment in any sense whatsoever. In fact, the Bible commends and requires judgment, evaluation in a number of realms, in a number of places in scripture. In fact, in this very chapter of Matthew chapter 7, if you look down at verse number 6, Jesus says do not give dogs what is sacred, do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Now, just that alone, and we will see a bit later in the message that this is referring to people metaphorically as dogs and pigs, and by the way, this is Jesus talking when he says that, and it requires that you differentiate between those who are the dogs and the pigs and those who are not, those to whom... They are worthy of having your pearls cast and those who are not. Well, how can you do that without making an evaluation, without making a judgment? And So in this very chapter, Jesus assumes that judgments will have to be made if you look further down. In verse 15, Jesus says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Again, how do you know a false prophet from a true prophet without making an evaluation? Jesus assumes that such evaluation, such judgment will take place. And elsewhere the Bible requires we make judgments of various kinds. Judgments about doctrinal truth or falsehood. Galatians chapter 1 The Bible says, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. An evaluation has to be made of what's being taught. And if it's taught consistent with the biblical gospel, it's to be accepted. If not, it is to be rejected. And that individual is to be rejected as a teacher. 1 John chapter 4 tests the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This testing of what's true versus what's false requires judgment, evaluation. 1 Thessalonians 5 simply says, Examine everything carefully. That's in the context, again, of teachings of, in that chapter, of prophesying. So the Bible commends the judging of messages with which we are confronted as to whether or not they are true or whether or not they are false, but it also commends judgment on behavior. Matthew chapter 18, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. Now, how is it that you are going to be motivated to go to a person and do what Jesus says here to lovingly confront them with their sin if you haven't first made an evaluation that they've sinned? So this command assumes, again, a judgment and evaluation, this time upon behavior. Likewise, in Galatians chapter 6, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. The assumption here is that we are looking to see people restored to fellowship with one another and most importantly to God, and we're desirous to be used as instruments in that process. But if we do not make an evaluation, then there's no way for us to know a remedy needs to be applied. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, a certain man who's committed a very heinous sin, a sexual sin that's become known in the church. And this is what Paul writes to the church at Corinth. Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Again, an evaluation, a judgment has been made. Jesus says very plainly in John chapter 7, and verse 24, John seven twenty-four, judge correctly, judge correctly. So it's not all evaluation and judgment that's prohibited in Matthew 7, 1. But rather, what is prohibited in Matthew 7 is what I call in your outline a critical spirit. It's not the critical faculty that's condemned by Jesus. Now, when I say the critical faculty... The word for judge most often in the New Testament is the Greek word, kritis. We get our word critical from it or critic from it. And so it's not the ability to criticize, to make evaluations, to make judgments. That's what I mean when I say the critical faculty. That's not what is being condemned by Jesus. That's a God-given ability of the mind in order for us to differentiate what's good and bad, what is right and wrong, what is true and false. The critical faculty evaluates according to God's standard and in a godly manner. But the critical spirit evaluates according to our standard and or in an ungodly manner. The critical faculty, the God-given ability to discern what's right and what's wrong, differentiate truth from error, good from bad, That evaluates according to God's standard, and it does so in a godly manner. That's a good thing. That's commended in Scripture. That's the critical faculty, but the critical spirit evaluates according to our standard and or in an ungodly manner. Now, according to our standard and or in an ungodly manner. Why do I say it that way? It's because that it's possible to have a critical spirit And to evaluate someone according to God's standard, the right standard, but to do so without the right manner. And that's why I say the critical spirit does one or both. It either evaluates according to our standard rather than God's and or it does so in an ungodly manner. So what Jesus is condemning now in Matthew 7 is not all judging but a particular type of judging that comes from a critical spirit that sets myself up as the standard and or approaches another in an ungodly manner. Now, we have an outline as each week inserted for you in your program. I encourage you to take that out. And we say, first of all, from this passage, a critical spirit shows spiritual pride. A critical spirit shows spiritual pride. Verse 1 says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. Now why do I say that this critical spirit that Jesus is condemning shows spiritual pride? Well, here's why. After hearing what Jesus has said in Matthew chapter five and Matthew chapter six about those who belong to him, those who have the character that he describes in the opening of this famous sermon and what we call the Beatitudes, and then show that character in their their actions as Jesus describes in Matthew 5 and 6, both in their public lives and in their religious private lives. Once we have heard Jesus say that and we achieve some measure of success in that, we see that we in some degree, certainly not to a perfect degree, but to some degree begin to measure up to the standard that Jesus gives in those chapters. After we've met that in some measure then we can begin to call attention to ourselves vis-a-vis other people. Call attention to ourselves and then call attention to the lack of progress of others in those same areas. So Jesus in chapters 5 and 6 has told us what we are to be and what we are to do. And now he's warning at the beginning of chapter 7, as you begin to be those things and do those things, be very careful that you do not become a critical judge of those who are not where you are. Do not judge. Be warned about the danger of doing so. And we all need that warning because our tendency is when we accomplish something to call attention to ourselves. And so we're tempted to elevate ourselves by direct boasting or by the demeaning of others. I remember when I was in high school, And on the few occasions when I would do well on a test, my poor mother, I remember her having to go to school for teachers' conferences, and how many times she would hear the words, if Kenny would only apply himself. We think he has the ability if he would only apply himself. But every now and then a blind acorn finds a nut, and I would get a good grade on a test. And whenever that would happen when it was lunchtime with my friends, the same people that I would sit with at the table each week, I would want to make sure to ask, So what would you guys think about that test? How about that test? How would you do? I wanted to compare. Now, in the other 90% of the time, when I didn't do well on the test, anybody else brings up the test, I'm saying, hey, how about those Red Wings? And that's the tendency for most of us. When I'm doing well in a particular area, my temptation is to call attention to that and then to call attention to your deficiency in that very area. But remember, the Sermon on the Mount begins back in chapter 5, and the Beatitudes begin in verse 3 with, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The very first, foundational to this entire sermon, is that those who are followers of Jesus and those who would develop the character of Christ, are people who, first of all, are poor in spirit, are humble. But these very same humble people now, as they begin to develop some of these character traits, and they begin to do some of the things that Jesus has described, are going to be tempted to say, hey, look at me, and begin judging others. A very violation, then, of this foundational necessity of humility. It is this desire to be critical of others that Jesus condemns because we have insufficient information about other people and why they are where they are in their journey and we are not the people to make that judgment. So elsewhere, Scripture says this, Romans chapter 14, Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall. You are not the one to judge where someone else is. And then you often have insufficient information. And in fact, you always have insufficient, insufficient information about some aspects of another individual. And let me explain what those aspects are in just a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 says this, "'Judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart.'" You know, friends, you do not have enough information to know the motivations for why someone does what they do. And when you judge someone based upon assuming you know their motivations, you are ascribing to yourself an ability that belongs to God and God alone. And God says specifically, and explicitly wait until the appointed time and I will expose what is hidden in darkness and the motives of the heart. There are some people I am convinced, I'm in fact convinced, I've met them, they told me. <laughs> you know, I'm really a good judge of character. I can just tell about people, they say. You know, I had a guy tell me years ago, I can tell what a guy's like when I shake his hand. Like, yikes, really? Just shake his hand to me. Anyway. And I've heard, and very often I've heard husbands say of my wife, my wife, man, she just knows people. I'm telling you, she can just tell about people. And I'm telling you, every one of us, friends, be very, 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 very careful about your supposed sixth sense to judge other people and know what they're about. God says you don't have that ability. And very often, what we think is this sixth sensibility is us drawing conclusions on superficial data that we receive about folks. We draw those conclusions. We say that to our spouse or to someone else. Have you noticed this about them? This is what I think they're like. This is what I think they're about. And then what happens is this. We put those lenses on and we begin to see everything that that person does now through those tainted lenses. And then every action they take simply confirms what we've already concluded. Because we're looking at them through those glasses. And God says you can't do that. And When we arrogate to ourselves this ability in our pride to make judgments about other people what, and, and, and things that we can't know and have no business judging about, there are a number of manifestations. One of those is we begin to whisper that to others. We begin to gossip, to talk about others making these unbiblical, sinful judgments about them. Or we see actions of someone and we think we can interpret what their reasons were for those otherwise innocuous actions. So as an example, when I come in on Sunday mornings, by the way, I'm giving this illustration not because this happened to me, but what I'm going to describe to you I do as a routine on Sundays, But I can see how someone, if they were maliciously inclined, could interpret it in a malicious way, in a a negative way. When I come in on Sunday mornings, everybody I see, I say hello to. So I come in about nine o'clock, I'll see a handful of people on my way to my office. I'll say hello to those people. Then after I've done some things in my office, I'll come in here, I'll see some more people, I'll say hello to them. It's not unusual for someone that I've already said hello to earlier, to be in proximity to someone that I haven't. And so when I come in here, I might say hello to one of these people, but not to the other. Now, to the person I said hello to that second time, they see this other person standing there. Why did he say hello to that? Huh. I wonder what's going on with them. Wow, he must not like them. That's cool. He likes me. Now, as I say, nobody that I know of has has done that, but it's just an example of how you can take an otherwise innocuous action and you can make determinations about it without sufficient information. Or here's here's another way that this is done. We make rash judgments, critical judgments about others without sufficient information. When we judge supposed sins of omission rather than evaluating people on the things they commit, the things they actually do. Have you ever said or have you ever heard someone say, well, you know, I would have thought you would have done X. So there's an evaluation based upon what you didn't do. Well, you know, that's wide open. There's a a ton of things I haven't done. And if I'm going to be judged or you are going to be judged and evaluated based upon what somebody thinks you ought to have done, rather than taking the positive approach in looking at that individual of, this is what I know about them and what they have done, and evaluating them in that light. And so some imagine themselves as judge and jury. They imagine what someone should have done or said, judging for these so-called sins of omission. They imagine themselves as a central issue and they judge based on how they're treated or not treated, these sins of omission. They imagine why the other party did or didn't do what they did or didn't do. And all of this rather than judging someone based upon what they do and what they say and finding good reasons why they may or may not have done what you would have expected. For example, if you're sick. And I was sick over the holiday. And I feel fine right now. Now, you may hear it a little bit, so I still have the vestiges uh, in my voice, but I feel fine. So don't be afraid to be around me. But if you don't want to shake my hand, that's okay. Just don't gossip about it if, we don't, if I don't shake hands then with everybody, okay? But let's say you're, you're, you're sick. If you're sick, instead of just being thankful for the people who contacted you while you weren't able to be at church for a couple of weeks, it's very tempting to make a mental list of those who who what? Who didn't contact you. And so many become critical in that way, gossiping, making evaluations with insufficient information, judging people based upon supposed sins of omission rather than upon the things they do. Let me encourage you that if you find yourself in that kind of mindset, if you have been one of these people who's been told you're a great judge of character and you have this sixth sense, let me encourage you to back off of that. Evaluate people only upon those things you absolutely know and practice the mental discipline of only drawing conclusions upon things you know to be true. And then serve people with that thing that you tend to be critical about that they've omitted. If people have not visited you as much as you think they should, again, nobody's complained about this, I'm just using it as an illustration, then begin to serve other people in that area. Because after all, this expressed concern that you've made is an indication of a need in the church, and it will redirect your energies from thinking about what others have not done to what I, what you, can do. And if you say, you know, I would do it, but I can't because here are the things going on in my life, then consider applying that same kind of latitude to the people that you're judging. If you're saying, I can't do it, that's okay. But understand that they probably can't do it either, and therefore you shouldn't be judging them. Friends, the game of life is played in the recesses of our minds and how we think about ourselves, how we think about God, and how we think about others. And a critical spirit shows spiritual pride. Secondly, in your outline, a critical spirit shows spiritual deficiency. Spiritual deficiency. Verse 1 says, Do not judge or you will be judged. And then verse 2 says 4. Connecting verse 2 to verse 1. So, do not judge or you will be judged for because in the same way you judge others, you will be judged and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, in verse 1, when it says you will be judged, the implication is that you will be judged by someone in particular, namely God. And you could actually supply that and it would be accurate. Do not judge or you will be judged by God. 4, verse 2, because in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. The measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, here's why I say a critical spirit shows spiritual deficiency. When we are in the business of judging others, we are people who have either forgotten or never experienced the mercy of God instead of His judgment on us. And that act on our part, judging others, shows a spiritual deficiency, a lack of the experience of the mercy of God to us. A lack of mercy for others is because we have not received or we have forgotten what we have received in mercy from God. D.A. Carson says this, A judgmental attitude excludes us from God's pardon, for it betrays an unbroken spirit. So it is a very scary thing now that Jesus says. When he says, if you're this kind of person who is judging, you're not the kind of person that I've been describing in chapters 5 and 6. And I'm calling, to, I'm calling you to arrest that now. So that you don't take the instructions that I've given in this sermon, achieve some measure ex- of success, and now begin to judge others. And thus show yourself to have forgotten or perhaps never experienced the forgiveness and the mercy that you so desperately need. In that sense, it's very similar to what Jesus said in explaining one of his lines in the disciples' prayer in chapter 6. Remember in the model prayer that Jesus gave to his first followers, one of the petitions he said were to regularly bring before God is to forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. But then in chapter 6, in verses 14 and 15, take a look at what he says. He expands upon that. Verse 14, if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. And as I explained at that time, and similar now in chapter 7 and verse 2, what Jesus is saying is not you forgive so that God will forgive you, but rather... If you are someone who has been forgiven, then you will be a forgiving person. And that's what Jesus is saying in Matthew 7 and verse 2. If you are judgmental towards others, then you are someone who has forgotten or never experienced the mercy rather than judgment that you have received from God. A critical spirit shows spiritual pride. A critical spirit shows spiritual deficiency. Now, when the first hearers of this sermon heard this illustration from Jesus, it had to be a humorous visual for them. You have someone who is a speck hunter looking for small deviations from uh, righteousness in the lives of others and even offering to remove a speck out of the eye of someone else. And all the while, they've got, this says, a plank So kind of picture a two-by-four sticking out of someone's head as they say, hey, let me help you with that. That's what Jesus is envisioning for them. And what's the remedy to that? Well, Jesus implies it in in verse 3. Because in verse 3, when he says, why do you, and then notice the word look, look at the speck and pay no attention? You look at the speck and you pay no attention to this 2 by 4 sticking out of your head. Now, the Greek words underlying those two, the word look and the phrase pay no attention, they are two different words for observing, looking, seeing. The first one, translated look, when you look, is simply a general word for, for uh scanning. And then the word underlying that phrase, pay no attention, means to have an intense focus upon. So Jesus says, here you are, somebody who's kind of scanning other people, you're spotting stuff about them, when in fact what you ought to be doing is focusing intently upon yourself. And if you were focused intently upon yourself, you wouldn't have this thing sticking out of your head. Ray Pritchard says that Jesus here starts talking in ophthalmological ophthalmological terms. And he has some experience with that because he's had eye surgery. And he says this, "'Ophthalmology is the branch of medicine dealing with diseases and surgery of the eye. I know a little about that, having had five surgeries on my eyes over the course of a five-year period. I'm enough of an expert to know this much.' When you're looking for an ophthalmologist, you want someone who knows what he's doing, who doesn't operate unless there's a real need, and who has a steady hand because eye surgery is delicate business. Make a wrong move and the results could be disastrous. The most unusual fact about eye surgery, at least from my perspective, is that you're awake while it happens. Even though the eye is numbed, you lie there and watch the doctor as he does his operation. In that situation, one thing you don't want to hear the doctor say is, Oops. You certainly want a doctor with clear vision. If the doctor can't see clearly, how can he be sure when he performs surgery on you? If the doctor has a plank in his own eye, how can he remove the speck in your eye? That's what Jesus meant when he said, How can you take the speck out of the eye of your brother when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? Sometimes in our haste, he says to help others. We can cause more damage than the original speck of dirt. To simply gaze on the sins of others turns us into judgmental Pharisees who are quick to condemn. But once we are cleansed and humbled by the Lord, then we're ready to remove the tiny speck from a brother's eye. And He will be glad for us to do it because He knows we're not there to condemn, but rather to help. Many examples of how we are quick to judge others. And yet, we have not first judged ourselves and evaluated ourselves. David did this, you remember, when David sinned grievously in committing adultery with Bathsheba and then seeking to cover it up by having her husband murdered. And then he was confronted by the prophet Nathan. And the prophet Nathan told the story of a man who was rich and he had many sheep. And he took the just handful of sheep that another man had. And Nathan said to King David, what should be done with this man who did this? And David was just irate. He said, this man should be killed. And you remember what Nathan then said to David, thou art the man. David had not evaluated himself, but he was ready to judge and condemn others. Years ago, I had a guy say to me after church, this was at our parent church 25 years ago, going back a long way. The guy wanted to join our then choir. The choir practiced on Sunday afternoons. He couldn't make it on Sunday afternoons. And he came to me and he said, Uh, hey, what about if we moved choir practice to Friday nights? And I said, you know, there's just too many people who can't make it on on Friday nights. And then immediately, without missing a beat, he said, well, where's their heart? Now, he's just judged a whole bunch of people because they can't come on Friday night to choir practice. And then I said, well, couldn't they say that about people who don't come on Sunday afternoon? Anyway... Uh, I'll continue. So Jesus is condemning this idea of looking for a speck while missing the obvious sin in our own lives and saying that we must be concentrated on our own sin. Verse 5, he calls that hypocritical, a hypocrite. Now why? Because remember back in chapter 6, Jesus talked about hypocrisy a number of times and at that time I defined hypocrisy as playing a role, acting. And here Jesus uses the word hypocrite as one who is acting because we're acting as if we're concerned about the health of another when in fact we're concerned about harming another. Instead of looking at that speck in the other person's eye in order to help them, we're looking at them with a critical spirit. And so we're acting like, hypocritically like we want to help when in fact we're trying to harm. All of this is a violation of the Bible's commands regarding love. 1 Corinthians 13. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. And then lastly in your outline, a critical mind shows spiritual discernment. Spiritual discernment. Verse 6. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do... They may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Now, when it says dogs here, many of you are dog lovers and dog owners. And when you see the word dog in your Bible, you think of your cuddly pet. These are not the kinds of dogs spoken of in in this passage and passages like it. Dogs in Palestine were marauders in the streets. And they were vicious, and they killed people and destroyed things. So when they heard dogs, they thought of vicious animals that nobody wanted to be around. When, uh, when, it, refers to, uh, when it refers to swine or refers to, to pigs, pigs, like dogs in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, were considered unclean animals. And so Jesus has this image of both of these that are brought together in a passage in 2 Peter chapter 2, referring to false teachers. It says, of them, these false teachers, the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit, and a sow that is washed returns to her wallowing in the mud. Both the dog and the and the pig. And here's what Jesus is saying. You possess... Pearls, you possess precious treasure in the truths that I have given you. And you have to be discerning about those to whom you distribute that. You have to judge, you have to evaluate. And that's why I say in that fourth point in your outline, notice each of those points starts with a critical spirit, but this last one begins a critical mind a critical mind shows spiritual discernment. And here's why Jesus includes verse 6 in this instruction about not judging with a critical spirit because he doesn't want us to get the idea that we're to do no judging. We have to do proper judging. We have to do discerning judging. And in particular, we have to judge between what's true and what's false and who is true and who is false. There is a time to turn away from someone who has rejected the message the precious treasure that we are giving to them Matthew 15 In fact we're in Matthew 7 if you'll just turn over to Matthew 15 Matthew 15 in verse 12 Matthew 15 in verse 12 The disciples came to him and asked, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? He replied, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. Jesus says, leave them. Now, some of us might be there and we go, well, hey, don't you just keep giving them the gospel? And Jesus says, leave them. And back in chapter 7 and verse 6, he says, don't cast your pearls before those who have indicated they don't want it and they're rejecting it. In Titus chapter 3, Paul said this, Warn a divisive person once then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. Now, I'm going to go through this quickly and we'll be done. But Jesus tacks on this verse 6 again to balance what he said in the first five verses of chapter 7 about not judging with a critical spirit so that we will understand that we still must be discerning people. And that discernment means that we've got to understand that people do not naturally want the truth that we're giving, the pearls that we're distributing. And there are times when people will reject us and reject our message and Jesus says, leave them and turn them to, to others. And that shocks the system of many of us. But there are some underlying truths that I want to bounce through quickly here, and then we'll be done. Related to what Jesus says in verse 6. Do you understand, friends, that underlying this is the truth that not all people will be saved? That's one of the reasons Jesus can say there are times when you're just going to have to move on. Not everybody is going to be saved. Another truth underlying this is that unbelievers can't handle and don't want truth. Most truth in the Bible, in fact, is not for the unbeliever. Most truth in the Bible is not for the unbeliever. In fact, the only truths in the Bible that are for the unbeliever are the truth about the fact that they have sinned against God and they need His rescue. That's it. The ethics that are given in the Bible cannot be done by an unbeliever. They cannot be carried out by an unbeliever. The instructions to do things like pray are not for an unbeliever because an unbeliever cannot pray to a God to whom he does not have a relationship. And Because what we have is treasure, and treasure that people desperately need. Now you hear this. This is the last application I want to make of this. But hear this, Friends. It is a tragedy beyond words when the church in any way, shape, or form compromises the pearl of the Word of God in order to accommodate a world that does not want it. And yet we have churches all over America that are doing that very thing. Those truths underlie what Jesus is saying then in verse 6, that we've got to be a discerning people about those who want God's truth and those who have rejected God's truth. Now, I may have to move on from someone. You may have to move on from someone. And God in His mercy and His grace can still reach down in His mercy and save them through another vehicle. Praise God. And He does that. And we would pray that He would do that. But Jesus is telling us here, we are not to have a critical spirit that judges people based upon our own standard and in our own ungodly manner. But at the same time, we need to understand that I've given you, I, God, have given you this critical faculty for you to use, and it must be used as you carry out my work. Your take-home truth. Christians show a godly attitude in the way they evaluate others. Christians show a godly attitude in the way they evaluate others. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day and the opportunity, again, to look into your word and to be instructed thereby. Thank you, Lord, for giving us the truth so that we can compare it and contrast it to error. Help us to be people that are committed to truth in our own individual lives, but also in the way we interact with those you've placed in our circle of influence. Help us, Lord, to judge and evaluate one another according to standards of truth and help us to do so in a godly manner. And Lord, help us to exercise that critical faculty that you have given to us to differentiate between what is good and bad, what is truth and error, what is right and wrong. And Thereby, may we make pleasing decisions that bring glory to our God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.